0: We are presently going through the Gospel of Mark and we find ourselves this morning in Mark chapter 12 and we'll be looking at a couple of scenarios um, from verses 13 through 27 in Mark chapter 12. And I was just thinking as I was uh, studying through the scripture um, how much we sometimes underestimate people. Um, It's really easy to underestimate and I, I, I had this. Uh, some of you know, maybe many of you know, not all of you know, a little girl uh, that is my daughter Amber's friend's daughter. Her name is Aaliyah. She was running around here even last Sunday. She's four years old, and if you know Aaliyah, she is a firecracker. Um, she is something. So over Christmas time, Aaliyah received a toy doll. I won't say what kind of doll it was in case, you know, Sean got it for Christmas or something and, you know, I don't want to offend him. Um, but uh, her dad, uh, David, my daughter Amber, just thought this doll was not really appropriate for a four-year-old or maybe didn't send the right message for a four-year-old. Um, so they, they told her at Christmas time, listen, listen honey, you, you're, you're not going to have this doll. And they took it away from her, much to her dismay, of course. But you know, Aaliyah got all kinds of other things. I mean, a lot of stuff uh, during Christmas time. Loads of stuff. Probably too much stuff. And you know, the, the assumption is that since she got so much, so much other stuff, and because she's four, of course, she'll quickly move on and forget about it. Um, so uh, another little piece of this story is um, we recently got. A, a free Google Mini through a uh, subscription that a music sub- subscription Cheryl has so that the government can spy on us. No, I'm not kidding. <laughs> That's what Fran told me anyhow. So we got... Um, <laughs> A, 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 a Google Mini, and and after New Year, all the family was over and Aaliyah was there, and we're kind of playing with the Google Mini, and like, because you gotta say, hey Google, or okay Google, hey Google, and asking all these silly questions, just all these questions, and everybody's like, hey Google, hey Google, hey Google, and, and she, it responds, uh, and, and it, apparently, Aaliyah f- saw a little window of opportunity here, um, <laughs> And she's sitting quietly playing. She's just sitting playing. We're like, hey, Google, hey, Google, hey, Google. And when there's a pause in the action, she looks up in all seriousness and her squeaky little four-year-old voice says, hey, Google, how do I stop people from throwing my Christmas presents away? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, okay, never underestimate the mind of a four-year-old um, and never underestimate Aaliyah K. Oldham. Man, uh, but this morning, we are going to see how often people underestimated Jesus. And, and I think one of the things that, that one of the main things I want us to be pondering as we just walk through these different texts and, and these themes kind of stand alone, stand apart, is how might we be underestimating Jesus? Um Let's start just by reading a couple of verses to set to lay the groundwork. We're just going to read uh, verses 13, the beginning of 14, and the middle of 15. Um, Mark 12:13. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance to the, with the truth. We'll pause there and we'll just jump to the middle of 15 and it says, but Jesus knew their what? Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Jesus is living here in this Mark chapter 12 in the final days before on the front side of the cross and the resurrection. He's in Jerusalem for the Passover. Uh, Opposition is mounting and his opponents are trying to press in and here we see them trying to get him into trouble and they're doing so by asking him, insincere questions, insincere questions. Their, their, their questions and their hearts don't align. And it says that they are attempting to catch, this is actually a hunting term, some of you might appreciate that, as a hunter, snare his prey um, to catch Jesus in his words. They're trying to trap him. And they begin with something that often placates even the most powerful people in the world, even the most intelligent people in the world. What do they begin with? Flattery. 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 And, and they do it in such a way where, ironically, they, they basically flatter him by telling him he's, he's not easily flattered, right? That, that he's not swayed by, by men. He's not swayed by the opinions of men. It's kind of like it's kind of like if someone uh, strokes your pride by telling you how humble you are. You know, oh brother, sister, you're so humble, and you're like, oh, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> so, so they're 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 flattering him by telling him he is not swayed by the opinions of men. But the problem is with their approach is that Jesus is not like the rest of us insecure because he has no broken ego to speak into. Right? That's what flattery does. It speaks into your broken ego. But Jesus, on the other hand, is 100% c- secure in his identity in God. He knows who he is. So he doesn't need other people to stroke his ego. He knows who he is with God. And, and, I, and I think that because of this, Jesus sees clearly he immediately knows their hypocrisy, which means they're acting, they're wearing a mask. And I think just, again, a little bit of a side note is that we too, when, we, we, when we're finding our identity in who we are in God, that we are created by him and for him, that, that we are forgiven and restored and made new, a new creation in Christ when we come to him in faith and repentance, That that we are his children adopted into his family. That we are commissioned as his representatives, his ambassadors in this world. When we say, God, you tell me who I am. And that's where I'll form my identity. That is where we begin to free ourselves from being swayed by the opinions of men. And I'll tell you, you desperately need that. And I desperately need that. You desperately need to be freed from being swayed by the opinions and the fear of men. And the only way you do that is by finding deeper and deeper and deeper who you are in God, who God says you are. And then I'm not swayed by the opinions of men, I can respond to life more clearly. I, I can stop living in hypocrisy and trying to play act and, and show one thing that I'm really not. I can be more vulnerable. Cheryl, if I can put her, she can get up here and be vulnerable because her identity is in Christ. It's an identity issue. But these guys, um, these guys are finding their identity, not in the Lord, but in their egos, in their fear of men. The, the text in Mark has already told us how afraid they are of the crowds how much they're trying to hold on to their position, hold on to their security, and, and, and instead of, because of this, they can't see clearly, and they don't see Jesus for who he is, Savior, Lord, Messiah, Son of God. They just see him as a threat to their egos, a threat to their own position, a threat to their own, to their own, uh, to their own pride. And Jesus will be one or the other. He will either be a threat to you, or he will be the one that you bow your knee to and say, Savior and Lord. And in this, they, they, they terribly underestimate him, not recognizing him for who he is. And as we move on, I think we'll look at two major ways that they do so. Uh, verse 14 through 17, we'll start in the middle of 14 where we left off. They asked Jesus this question, Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, Whose portrait is this? Or image, we could say, is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. So first I want to say that these, these men underestimated Jesus' wisdom. These men underestimated Jesus' wisdom. They, they attempt to trap him with what we could call a political question. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Um, what, do we have an obligation to the state? And I say the state in the sense of uh, a ruling government. Do we have an obligation toward the state? It's a question that's asked by many today. And, of course, for the first century Jew, it pertained to Rome. And and the backdrop of this is this question is very interesting because it's posed by the Pharisees who was opposed to Roman rule, although they didn't openly revolt against it, but they were not happy about it. But it's also brought to him with another group. These Pharisees come together with who, does the text say? Yeah, the Herodians, which we don't know a whole lot about, but we know that they were sympathetic to the family of the Herods, and the family of the Herods totally relied on Roman rule for their positions. These two groups were not friendly with one another, but they come together in their opposition against Jesus. Um, We could could say in the background were groups like the Sadducees, which we'll see in the next episode. Uh, Groups like the Zealots, it, it was this party that was severely opposed to Roman rule. And then the general population, who by and large did not like the fact that they had an occupying nation in their country charging them exorbitant taxes. So, so these men think they're very shrewd because they, think they have Jesus in a no-win situation. Because either he's going to speak against Rome, <laughs> bad idea, or he's going to speak against the people. Either he's going to speak against the Herodians, or he's going to speak against the Pharisees and the Zealots. And he's just in the situation. It seems like no matter what he says, he's—I want to say word, but I won't—in a bad spot. But they underestimate Jesus's wisdom, and in one fell swoop off their mask right because hypocrisy is play acting it's wearing a mask he rips off their mask he shines a light on their motives and and he says straight out why are you trying to trap me you ever have someone speak right to your motives that's like that that's that insightful that can just speak hey let's let's cut to the chase hey this is what's going on and you're like oh and you feel you feel a little exposed jesus was a master at doing this because he spoke to the heart why are you trying to trap me? And then he speaks with truth. He does this without the fear of men. And he does it in such a way that he evades the trap, actually answers their question, and then goes even deeper. He, he asks for a Roman coin, which what's interesting is we're not really sure how quick they got this coin, but a lot of people believe that they just kind of went, and who, who's got a coin? Who's got a, they're in the temple of God, which you can only use Jewish money. And someone's like, oh, oh here it is. I got a Roman, I got a denarius. I got a Roman coin. And so he asked for a Roman coin. This isn't a Roman coin. This is an American uh, bill. And in a sense, Jesus has already subtly made his po- a point. Because simply by the possession and the use of the state's money shows that they're benefiting from it. And that, that whether it's known or not known, acknowledged or not acknowledged consciously, they're acknowledging the state's authority at some level. Oh, here it is. I've got, I've got the state's money in my pocket, in my purse. Uh, the author R. Allen Cole says, If we accept the amenities of the state in law and order express, expressed in guaranteed coinage as in, Other things, so we could say protection and roads and sewers and and whatever whatever the government may do, then we have no right to seek to escape the burden imposed by the state. And Jesus asks, he says, uh, they had images on their on their coins. Um, We have images of founding fathers and stuff on our money. Um, We have, you know, buildings of of our uh, state on our money we have slogans and um, he says hey hey listen whose whose portraits on the coin whose image is that whose inscription is that and they know full well it's who it's caesar's and the inscription actually would have made caesar out to be a what a god So, so Jesus says, all right, so you're carrying the state's money, um, you're benefiting you're, you're from, from its amenities, and you're acknowledging at some level that you're under its authority. Hey, so give to Caesar, and actually the word give here actually means pay to Caesar, pay what he's due, Give payment to Caesar. What is Caesar's? If the money is a representation of the government by which it's printed and the resources that it supplies to its citizens, then we should willingly give it back to from which it came. Some of you are squirming a little bit, right? Like, really? We should give it back freely instead of, instead of, so deeply identifying ourselves with it. Because this is what we tend to do. The more I got of this, the more, the more of the state's image that I have in my pocket, in my bank account, really makes me somebody. Right? Give me more 20s, give me more hundreds, give me, right? That makes me somebody the more I've got of this. But that's not what makes somebody, somebody. Jesus takes it deeper. He he points us to the greater authority over all authorities. And and as he points to the coin's image, it it would have started to stir something in their minds. It should remind them and us what gives us our greatest value, what points us to our greatest responsibility, the fact that we are image bearers of who. God himself, that you are created in God's image. Like that coin held the image of Caesar, you in your very essence hold the image of God. So then he says, well then give to God what is God's. If Caesar is due his coinage, then God is due His image. Donald English writes, we know ourselves to be made in the image of God and that our commitment to him is the only absolute commitment that can be expected of human beings. Nothing else, I'm sorry, everything else must be worked out in the light of that one total duty. Now the New New Testament scriptures are are pretty clear that we are to live um, in respect of our authorities, We are to live at peace within our society as far as it is up to us. You can can, uh, read Romans 13, 1 through 7, 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17, 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4. If you want those references, I'll give them to you later. But even though I am clearly obliged to the state at some level, my obligation to God always supersedes us. Always. This is one reason that I think we need to be wary of the trap of overzealous nationalism and extreme political patriotism and especially intertwining it with my allegiance to God and Christ. Uh, The author David Garland writes, "The the church must be far enough removed from the political machine to allow it to speak prophetically. That's interesting. And that's not even saying that no one should get involved in politics, but I should not allow my heart to become part of the political machine. I have to be far enough removed that I I am not being, my actions are not determined by the fear of men, but that I can speak prophetically into my time and my culture. The state might be due some of my money. The state might even be due my civil obedience. But God is the author of my life. And I bear his image. So I owe him everything. Body, soul, mind, everything. There's nothing that he does not have claim And in Christ, Philippians 3.20 tells us that we're first and foremost citizens of heaven. And therefore, if and when any of the state's requirements, although I am to respect the the earthly authorities over me, if the state's requirements ever call me to do something against God's requirements which are summed up in my love for God with my entire being that I owe everything to him and that I love my neighbor, whoever that neighbor may be, as I love myself. If the state ever prohibits me from doing that, my allegiance is to the king of kings. Peter says in Acts 5, 9, 5.29, we must obey God rather than men. These men grossly underestimated the wisdom of Jesus, and therefore the wisdom of God is Himself. And we could ask: are, are we, whose image are we living for? The image of the coin, the image of the bill? Does this make you somebody? Or the image that's imprinted on your soul? Verses 18 through 27. Then the Sadducees, who say there's no resurrection, that's important, who say there's no resurrection, we're also told in in Acts, I think, 28, that they didn't believe in angels, and they just—they didn't believe in a lot of what we would call the supernatural, the spiritual, um, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry his widow, and have children for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no child. It was the same with the third. You'd think they'd start getting worried, right? In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too, At the resurrection, you can almost hear the the snideness in their voice. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, "Um, are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now, about the dead rising. (laughs) about the dead rising, these who say there is no resurrection, have you not read in the book of Moses? Now, this is really important because the Sadducees only respected the five books, uh, first books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. That's all they respected. They didn't respect the oral traditions. They didn't respect the rest of what we consider the Old Testament, just the writings of Moses. So Jesus points them right back there. Now, about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. (laughs) Jesus isn't mincing any words. So next we see a group of men that not only underestimate what I'd say the, is the wisdom of Jesus, they're doing that, but they also underestimate the power of Jesus. And, and the reason I say that is because they're underestimating the power of God, and to do that is also to underestimate the power of his son. Um, they attempt to trap Jesus with this question about marriage, right? So we we, we, we might frame it in this concept of marriage and marriage in the Really, it's really more of a question about the nature of the resurrected life. That, that, that scripture points us to the fact that not only do souls of those who believe in God go to be with God, but eventually there will be a bodily resurrection of the dead. And really, eventually, it'll be a resurrection where some go to eternal life with God and some to eternal death. But the hypocrisy of the Sadducees is that, you know, this, this wealthy, well-connected, uh, aristocratic party, very concerned about their own privilege and status, they don't believe in the resurrection at all. So, so because of this, they, they, they put before Jesus what Almost would seem a ridiculous situation, although I did know adele how many how many husbands I did know a woman that I think had five husbands die um so it's not totally ridiculous, but it's like they're they're putting this exaggerated hypothetical situation before Jesus. Um, A scenario that that according to Jewish tradition, the the law of Moses, if a woman died without children, really, again, it was an imperfect uh, system, but it was somewhat to protect the woman, somewhat to protect the family name. She would marry the dead man's brother, and if they had a son, then that first son of the dead man's brother would be considered the heir of the dead man. And the family name would be perpetuated, and the woman would still be able to Um, be taken care of but man man died man died man died man died man died man died no children so they're like so Jesus at the resurrection whose wife is she Jesus addresses two major problems with their question he revealed their ignorance of God's word and their ignorance of God's power uh, for, for the word of God is the foundation of all that we believe about God, all that we know about God, that, that, that his word reveals who he is, reveals his plan of salvation, tells us how we should be living in this world. It's the basis of all truth that, that flows uh, for the believer in this life and as we look forward to the next. But the word of God cannot... This is really important. So if you, The word of God cannot stand apart from the power of God. If it's just the word, it's lifeless. It's just stuffy religion. It's it's hopeless. But the word of God has to be joined with the power of God. For the power of God is what brings all his word to reality. The resurrection in one sense you get get the sense that Jesus is saying um, it, it should be a foregone conclusion. Jesus becomes the first fruits of the eternal resurrection when you know the word and the power of God. And the resurrection, he clarifies with them, and we don't have a whole lot to, to make a whole big doctrine about the afterlife here, but, it, but he says, hey, listen, it, it's, in a sense he's saying it's not just a continuation of life as you know it, just with a little, a little nicer house and golden streets. and It's a completely different life. It's a completely new life. In fact, you will be like the angels. He's not saying you will be angels. In fact, the, the, the epi- well, in the epistles it says, don't you know that you will judge angels? Like, let your mind wrap around that. We will be of a higher order of the angels because the angels are not God's children. You are if you trust in Jesus. But you'll be like the angels in this relational aspect. And it seems that even marriage is something for, for this time, that, that, that intimacy of a good marriage physically, emotionally, spiritually, mentally, that that intimacy of a good marriage really just gives us a taste and a glimpse of what will happen for all of us as we have the resurrected life with God. If they truly listened to the word of God, they would have witnessed the power of God The God who said to Moses, he's like, listen, go back to Moses, the burning bush. This is hundreds of years after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had died. 200 to 300 years after they they respectively died. And God says, Moses, and he, he identifies himself, he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He doesn't say I was the God of these dead guys. He says, I am their God, which assumes what? They're alive. (laughs) It it assumes that they're still living. God is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Again, R. Allen Cole says, the guarantee of their eternal life is not the nature of their experience of God, but the nature of the God whom they experience. He is the God of the living because he is the living God himself. Jesus prays in John 17, 3. Now this is eternal life, right? This is eternal life. Let me define it for you. This is eternal life. Ready? That they may know you. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The assumption is that when someone comes to know God, when we come to Jesus in repentance and faith, trusting him as Savior and Lord, and we come to know God through Jesus, we can do nothing but live. That's it. There's no other option. You're alive forever. Even the gospel itself is a reflection of how the word of God must be joined with the power of God. Romans 1.16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. When you come to faith in Jesus, you are now and forever alive. Though your body is wasting away, and some of you are experiencing that more than others, right? Right? though your body is wasting away, you are alive. You have eternal life within you. Your spirit has been resurrected. And one day, because it could not be any other way, when that body is laid into the ground like a seed, it will raise to eternal life. Unlike the body you're experiencing now, but a body nonetheless. Because the power of God will bring eternal life to the body according to the word of God. You say, isn't this this the marriage that we see even in the beginning of creation? That God spoke his word and there came life from nothingness. That he created mankind from the dust and breathed life into his nostrils. is isn't. John John Phillips says, a God who created galaxies is not a God to be stopped cold by the fact of physical death. It is no more remarkable that we should live again than it is that we should live at all. So about the resurrection, he says, (laughs) to these guys that just had no, no hope of it. So to wrap up, I think one thing that's really beautiful that we see, and and I I teased this in the beginning, is that Jesus doesn't doesn't just talk to this, right? He does talk to minds. We don't want to throw our minds away. He does talk to minds. Um, He certainly doesn't speak out of the protection of his own fragile ego. He speaks to this for those who will have ears to hear. He speaks to hearts, and I think it's a really, really important lesson for us if we think about application. We think about how Jesus, you know, I mean, we, we've got a lot going on with, you know, respect of earthly authority, respect of God's authority, the resurrection of the dead, life eternal, how different that will be, a completely new life, but but we see how Jesus interacts with these men, and he listens to their questions, but he doesn't just Answer their questions. And he doesn't just speak to the mind. He speaks to the heart. And I think that, you know, we need to be having conversations with people. We need to not just shrug off people's questions and people searching and and people, we need to be talking about what is this God of the Bible? Who is this Jesus? Is the Bible true? But as we're doing that, and you're driving in your work truck or you're at school or or you're doing homework with your friends or you know, you're you're at your you know family reunion with your uncle, with your, you know, I'm not gonna say Joe, I always want to say Joe. Your Uncle Phil. And they're like, you know, don't just hear the questions. Don't just hear the logic or the things that people want to trip you up with. Listen to the heart. And by the power of the Spirit of God, in His timing, with His gentleness, His thoughtfulness, speak to the heart. And then finally, let's remember how these people underestimated Jesus in His wisdom and His power. Where might we be doing the same? You know, sometimes I think we just think we're outwitting Jesus. Like, Jesus, I can kind of sin and grin, and that'll have no effect on my life. Now, he still loves you, but it has effect on your life. Like, you're not kidding him. You're not fooling him. Jesus is no fool. He knows what's good for you. He knows what's harmful for you. He is one of amazing grace, amazing mercy, but don't kid yourself. You're not outwitting him. Uh, do you think that your logic of how you should handle your life supersedes his wisdom, his commands? Well, you know what—I know what your word says, but you know my my circumstances. If you only know how complicated they are and how unique they are, and they're, they're unique to you, but they're not that unique. And Jesus knows what he's doing. He's infinitely wise. Am I living to, for the image of the coin or the bill? Or am I living the image marked on my soul? And, and am I relying on the word of God with the power of God? Not, not just some false god of some powerless religious book. There's all kinds of those in the world. But a God who raises the dead unto eternal life, now and forevermore. Am I expecting that power to break into the natural world? Am I expecting the combination of that word and that truth to manifest itself in my weakness? Because that's what I need. Because I'm weak and I'm broken and I need to know that there's a God that speaks truth into my life with power. And that it can manifest itself through my weakness. And He can show beauty and life in spite of myself. Hey Google, how do I stop people from throwing my Christmas presents away? (laughs) Maybe we should pray, hey Jesus, please help us to stop underestimating you. Hey Jesus, please help us to stop underestimating your wisdom please help us to stop underestimating your power. May we expect it in all your goodness and strength to manifest itself in our weakness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.